You know, as we continue our time of worship, we're going to be studying 1 Samuel chapter 22. What we found so far is that David is in trouble. He is being hunted by his father-in-law. But if you remember last week, Ryan mentioned a real small character in his point too named Doag. And Doag becomes a major, major force here in chapter 22. In fact, let me share with you two verses that summarize this chapter. The first one is in verse 9. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Himelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And suddenly David, who thought he was escaping by night, now because of Doeg, King Saul is back on his trail. But toward the end of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter, somebody gets a chance to hang out with David. And look what David says. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But he who is with me shall be safe. How can he say that? How can he say, if you're with me and I'm being hunted by the king of the country, that you're going to be safe? It's clearly not circumstances. In fact, the word safe here used in verse 23 literally in Hebrew means to be safe guarded. And that's what we're going to look at today in chapter 22. How do you stay safe guarded by God, protected by God, when life lets the dogs out, the doegs out? Because life will come at you. Doeg will come at you through bad circumstances, through betrayal, somebody saying mean things, doing mean things. And we're in a culture today obsessed with being safe. And some part of that's smart. But in one sense, there's no way you and I are ever going to be in circumstances that are 100% safe or comfortable or convenient or perfect. However, we can be in a place that we're safe, guarded by God. That even though David's being hunted, he can say to those around him, stay near me and you will be safe, guarded by God. So let's look at four things to remember when life lets the dough eggs out. What do we keep in mind and remember about God so we can stay safe, guarded? How do you stay safe, guarded when life lets the dough eggs out? Well, look what happens at the beginning of the chapter. David therefore departed from there, the area last couple chapters where he inquired of the Lord, and he escaped to the cave of Abdullam. Now what is the cave of Abdullam? Well, if you go to the Middle East, archaeologists believe they have found this area in the valley of Elah. So as we move through the valley here, you'll see there's lots and lots of trees. There's some area of agriculture on the left-hand side. <clears throat> Pardon me. And on the right-hand side, amongst all those trees, is a cave system. Now, several different cave systems are there, but I want to look specifically at the one they think David and his men were in. So here in the Elon Valley, up here in Abdullam, or Adullam, is a system of caves. Here's one of the areas you can find those caves, and I want to look at just one 
at the entrances. As we zoom in here, you'll see a little area of rock where somebody has built a wall system to one of the entrances to the caves. We zoom a little bit closer. I want you to imagine David and his men hiding out here because they have heard that King Saul and Doeg are coming to get them. What happens next? David therefore departed. From there, he escaped to that cave. Imagine him huddled up in that cave. Shh, 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 they're coming. And in this cave, he and his brothers, in all his family's house, father's house, right? Saul's going to kill not just me, but anyone I know. They heard it. They went down there to meet with him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Now what's going on here? David has become like the the captain of the island of misfit toys. Nobody wants a Charlie in the box, right? I mean, they're all in debt and distressed and discontented. This is not a who's who list of the men you want to be your mercenaries or protectors. But David becomes their leader. And David, in the middle of this circumstance, is going to be the captain of the island of misfit toys. If anything, his circumstances have gotten more difficult. He's now got to protect 400 people and their families from King Saul trying to kill him. How in the world is he going to be safeguarded? How in the world can you and I be safeguarded in circumstances like this? What do we need to remember during these times? Well, look what David does. David went there. Now he's got 400 men and families. From Mizpah to Moab. And he says something to the king of Moab. So where is he? And how does he get to this area? Well, the Dead Sea typically is a gigantic sea that when it's full, comes all the way up to Masada, which we'll talk about a little bit later today and next week. Well, certain times in history, the water level was down enough that you could travel across the dry land where the water had subsided. So what we think is that David and his men traveled between the Dead Sea and Masada. They made their way along this kind of dotted line here next to the peninsula and made their way to Moab. And here in Moab, he has something very important to say to the king. He wants to protect his parents because they're in danger. Please let my father and mother come here with you. Now look at this. Until I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. That's Masada. We'll come back to that. Now, did you catch the phrase? Can you protect my mom and dad? Because I'm going to be out here at the stronghold until I know what God will do with me. That's the first thing I want you to remember. It's the first thing I need to remember when my circumstances go from bad to worse. Or when my life gets injected with another big dose of uncertainty. And certainly, we've had a lot of uncertainty recently. And we don't want our happiness and our sense of safety to be determined by what the governor says, by what the president says, by what the Congress says, by what the, uh, the, the stats are, right? We're going to constantly feel insecure. That's not being safeguarded. To be safeguarded is to say, I don't know if the schools are going to open or they aren't. But God, I want to remember 
that you are with me even when I don't know what you're going to do with me. Right? Did you catch the verse? I'm going to trust you, God, and keep doing and obeying where I'm at until I know what God will do for me. He doesn't know. He's facing uncertainty. But God, I'm going to remember something. Remember God is with you. Even when you don't know what he will do with you. What if you faced your current circumstances, current uncertainties, and current challenges, and said, God, I'm gonna remember that you are with me, even though I don't know what you're gonna do with me. I don't know what tomorrow brings or next month, but the thing I can anchor myself in and be safeguarded by is that the God of the universe is with me. What happens next in the text? Now remember, David has been hiding in a cave before he ran and dropped off his parents. But now he's going to be tempted to hide in a stronghold, a location we know today as Masada. So remember, verse 1 said he was hiding in a cave for a while. But then verse 5, the prophet Gad shows up and says to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. A couple things he mentions there. One, hey, God is going to protect you, but stay in Judah. Don't go to the Philistines, which is exactly what he's going to do. But for right now, he's obeying. The prophet Gad, God is with you, just stay in Judah. But also, it feels pretty safe up top in the stronghold. God doesn't want you in the stronghold. Why? That's safer. God wants you in the forest where he can show how he's going to provide for you. Now this is scary. In fact, when archaeologists have gone and seen these caves, some of the caves are big and spacious, but some of them are really, really tight. In fact, let me show you a video of what it looks like to crawl through those caves. Uh, imagine yourself, and this is a separate entrance that we looked at earlier, imagine you and your men, 400 men and all of their families, trying to crawl through these very, very small cave systems. My dad used to take us up to an area of caving in northern Illinois, and I remember walking through, crawling through different caves. And it's difficult. You never know when there's going to be a drop-off, when there's going to be a danger. Now imagine you're David, and you're crawling through these caves, the cave of Adullam, trying to bring kids along. Shh, 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 be quiet, be quiet. Things are echoing all over the place. You're afraid Doag and King Saul might be right behind you at any moment, right? That's why one of the reasons God says don't stay in the caves. This is not going to be a safe place. However, when we get to the, the refuge or the stronghold, it seems like it is a, a, a safe place. So why does God not want him to cave or why does God not want him in the stronghold? If you've ever seen pictures of Masada, it is amazing. It is, it took me an hour and a half to walk my way up to the top of Masada. This would be a very, very secure location. And yet, what does the prophet tell him? The prophet tells him, don't stay in the cave, but also don't stay in the stronghold. Why? Well, I think what that tells us is that caves feel safe, but they're not safe. 
refuge. Masada feels safe, right? What's it look like? Look at that massive picture of that thing. Imagine being on the top here. You could see Saul coming from miles around. But the prophet is telling David is the only safe place, the only safe guarded place is to be in the hands of God. If you know you're in the hands of God, you don't crawl into a depression, a cave, to find your safety. You don't crawl up to some, some refuge and stronghold and say, because I'm here and my circumstances are perfect, because I can see everything coming from miles around, I can plan years in advance, that makes me safe. Planning is good, but it's not safe. Finding a place of refuge, like a cave, is safe. But it's not to be safeguarded. The only place where you're safeguarded is in the hands of God. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend recently who I met about five years ago. In fact, uh, his name's Devin. As Devin was sharing with me his journey many years ago, he said, Chad, I just had a big dose of uncertainty. My whole career got derailed when I was in my you know, early 50s. I had no idea this was going to happen. And I wasn't prepared for it. So we sat and we chatted for a little bit. And I said, well, I'm not sure exactly what God's going to do, but there's some things you can remember in the middle of this. And what's, what's the prophet saying? Remember not to get stuck in a cave or a refuge to find safety. What I said to Devin that day is, you know, your job isn't where safety is. If you suddenly got hired tomorrow at another job and you felt safe again, you wouldn't be safe. I would encourage you to get into a Bible study to begin to understand where where real safety comes from, to be safeguarded by your creator. Well, he circled back around to me about a month ago. And he told me how powerful the last couple of years have been in beginning to experience Bible study for the first time. I connected him to one of our men's uh, small group leaders. And he said, it's just been so great talking life, talking business, learning to trust God. He said, I would never have known then what I know now is that God used those circumstances to steer me into a, a job and a career that's just been perfect for this season of life. Now, he said, I'm going to miss Horizon. They're moving uh, out of state. And he said, I'm so enjoying the online services, and, and I hope you're going to continue to do that. And I said, yeah, that's, it's here to stay. But it was so powerful to hear someone who years ago was distraught thinking their safety was in their job, but now is beginning the process of finding their confidence in being safeguarded by their creator. See, remember, don't get stuck in a cave, but also don't get stuck in a stronghold. Remember, nothing but the hands of your creator can make you safeguarded. Let's go back to the text. So what's our third remembrance? Well, look what happens with David here. When Saul heard that David and the men were with him, it had been discovered. (laughs) Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all the servants standing around him. So he is mad. He is ready to kill him. He is ready to make sure he dies this time for good. Now, why does the writer, Samuel, include this tamarisk tree? Well, what is a tamarisk tree? Well, here's what it looks like. So imagine sitting under a giant tamarisk tree. 
But why does Samuel include this detail? Well, it's because in Genesis chapter 21, when Abraham first believed in God, he planted a tamarisk tree to say, I'm going to plant this tree that one day future generations will sit under this tree in the promised land when you fulfill your promises. So I think the irony here that Samuel's writing about is here's someone sitting under the legacy of God's promises all the way back to Abraham under a tamarisk tree and yet he is filled with rage and anger and is so far out of God's will. All right, back to the tamarisk tree. So Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse make every one of you, is he gonna give every one of you fields, vineyards, and make every one of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. Wow. Now, he is so used to manipulating people and controlling people. And as we're going to see as the chapters continue to unfold, Saul is losing track of reality. Now, did you notice in the passage how much exaggeration he said? Every one of you is going to get something from David. No one has followed me. Every one of you has refused to tell me the truth. One of the things that happens when you're under pressure, remember David's under pressure and Saul's under pressure. David continues to remind himself of truthful thinking. God is with me. God's gonna make a way of escape. Saul, on the other hand, continues to resort to distorted thinking. He's being distorted by the facts around him. He's creating a reality that's not true to distort the truth. Look at the exaggeration here. Every one of you, that's not true. Not everyone's gonna get anything. All of you, no one. This is what psychologists call distorted thinking thinking or cognitive dissonance. This is what happens when you get out of touch with God, you get out of touch with truth. And sometimes that happens with depression. We just lose the ability to hope, to have courage, We get overwhelmed with fear. Sometimes distortions happen because we catastrophize. Sometimes it's because we become Pollyanna. I know it's going to be great by next week. But you don't know it's going to be great. And you don't know it's going to happen next week. In fact, psychologists recently, I saw a great quote talking about how these distortions happen. Let me give you one more from Saul. He says, and there is not one of you who is sorry for me, no one cares about me or revels to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So again, we see victimhood, polarized thinking, either you're for me or against me, exaggerations, all type of cognitive dissonance. Again, like I mentioned, depression can do that, but so can overly optimistic thinking. I saw a great quote from a psychologist said, the prevailing view, what most people kind of think is common sense, is that a depressed person tends to distort reality in a negative way. But more recently, the research has shown that evidence is that, the, that not that the depressive person is distorting reality, but that the so-called healthy population doesn't have it quite right. Depression often removes the positive self-biases that are seen in the non-depressed. With recovery, 
a new kind of truth could emerge. Now, what's he saying? Optimists have a tendency to distort reality. They think for sure they know what God is and isn't going to do. People who are depressed sometimes are more in tune with reality. How's that? Well, because life is filled with pain and things don't always get better right away. However, we don't want to fall into the cave of Abdullam in depression, but we also don't want to constantly set up false expectations and come crashing down like Pollyanna. So as you go through recovery, it's about realigning your thinking to the truth of God. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm in God's hands. You know what? I don't have to be hopeless in depression in a cave because I'm in God's hands. Right? That's what he's getting at here. So remember to reject distorted thinking. Keep in line with God. And I know what God's calling you out of. If he's calling you out of a cave, maybe he's calling you to do something big. To get out of a cave and just start living life. Maybe he's calling you to take a big risk to get out of your safety stronghold and the distorted thinking I can ever be safe. Instead to say, what does it look like to trust God by maybe serving someone else? Getting to a Bible study like, like Devin did. Joining our new men's group that's starting up for this fall. Maybe the distorted thinking is I need people around me to help me in that journey because it's hard to do that on your own. Maybe the thing God's calling you out of, the distorted thinking of thinking some magic number in your savings account makes you safe. Maybe God's calling you to give big. Give financially to say, God, I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting a stronghold or a cave. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's learning about your own spiritual journey and what it means for God to be in your stronghold, to be your source of safety. In fact, if we can help you at Horizon, give me a call. Call John or Drew. Let's get you into a group so you can begin the process of finding your security and confidence in God. And let's reject, remember to reject distorted thinking. All right, what's our next one? Let's go back to the text because the next one is probably the most difficult to hear. We're now coming face to face with Doag. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Himelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, even gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Elimelech, the priest, the son of Hittub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Hittub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword? And have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as to this day. And you're beginning to see this distorted thinking. Everyone's out to get me, my daughter, my son, the priest, God. It's all beginning to snowball. Elimelech answered the king, no, 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 that's not true. And among you, all the servants, David's not out to get you. He's faithful. Who's more faithful than David who is the king's son-in-law. Remember, he's, he's not just a son of Jesse. He's your son-in-law who goes at your bidding. He, he's done what you've said. He's honorable in your house. He's trying to give a dose of truth to him. Did I then begin to inquire of God of him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute 
anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. I didn't know anything about a conspiracy. As far as I know, he's always been a good guy. He's your son-in-law. What happens next? Well, the king said, good speech, you shall surely die. Elimelech, you and all your father's house. He's going to kill the priest. How distorted has he been? He's going to become a mass murderer of the priest of God. The king said to the guards who stood by him, turn, kill the priest of the Lord, because her hand is also with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. And so Saul's men are told to kill the priests of the land. They got enough courage, enough in tune us with the truth not to do it. The servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest. This is not right. This is not what we should do. But remember, Doag is sitting in the wings. The king said to Doag, hey, Doag, you turn and kill the priest. And Doag doesn't have any problem with it. Doag the Edomite turned and he kills and strikes down all the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Just mass genocide done by Doeg. Well, what do we need to remember here? We need to remember that Doeg's are normal in an abnormal world. There is a world filled with evil. It will bash your teeth in. It will come after you. It will try to destroy you. As Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So how do we remember as we face challenges that in this abnormal world, there's no place that's safe except the safeguarded hands of God because the world is filled with doags who do excessive and horrible evil. Remember, an attack dog, an attack dog is normal in an abnormal world. I got a phone call recently. You know, one of the incredible things about our church is it's not just we're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible, through services on the weekend, but it's that one-on-one phone calls. It's the, we feel like a big church if you drive by, but we feel like a small church when we can call each other. Staff and volunteers, we try and assess where the needs are. And, and if you hear of somebody in need, let us know. Call John or me or, or Tammy or, or Drew. Because we want to be the kind of church that reaches out to people when people are feeling the attack dogs. Feeling like, wow, life is cruel and bad things happen to good people. One of those that happened to me recently is uh, John had alerted me to a family in the church. who has been coming for many, many years. And their 20-something daughter, who also attends here, um, she had a great friend, just a best friend, who out of nowhere in her 20s suddenly passed away. I didn't know all the details, but I got on the phone. Hey, I just heard there's been a tragedy. Tell me what's going on. And over the next half hour, we began to just talk just about this being a best friend. Why in the world does someone in their 20s have to pass away? A good Christian person. Why would God allow that to happen? As we were talking on the phone that day, before I offered to pray, she shared with me, she said, Chad, well, I just hope at the funeral that, that her faith comes out and that people come to know Jesus because of this. And I said, man, that's, that's what I hope too. 
I said, but let's not rush to resurrection quite yet. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to live in a world with tragedy and difficulty. It's okay occasionally to pound your fist on God's chest and say, God, why would you allow Doag to do this? And I don't know what your Doag is. Is it a death? Is it a health report? Is it cancer? Is it a rebellious son or daughter that you've prayed, God, bring them back? What I told her that day on the phone is, it's okay to mourn with God. It's when we mourn with God and share our hearts with God that he comforts us. We serve a high priest who's acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every situation. And if you're angry at God or sad or depressed or in that cave of Adullam, God wants to be with you. She said, well, thank you for that. I said, you can rub the hope of the gospel into this. You're going to see your friend again. This is not the end. However, we were never made for a world with death. And she began to cry on the phone. I said, can I pray for you? And I just began to pray that the Holy Spirit would be her comforter that would draw near to her in this time. And I'd like to do the same for you. Pray that the hope of the gospel, that Jesus died, he rose himself from the dead so that we will be in heaven with him and see those who've gone before us. That is all true and we rub that hope into the grief. Thessalonians says, we do not grieve like those with no hope. Feel free to grieve when the doegs come and kill off the innocents. God is grieved and God is angry at a world that is so abnormally out of sync with him. Remember, God is with you even when you don't know exactly what he's doing with you. Remember to reject distorted thinking. And also remember that attacking doegs are, are normal in a very abnormal world. But God has overcome. Remember what it said at the end of the chapter? That's where we're at. We're at the end of the chapter. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Hittub, named Abiathar, escaped. So remember, Doeg's killed everybody, but one person escapes. It's the son of the priest. And he runs and tells David, you're not going to believe this, but Saul has gone out of his mind. He just killed all the priests. Saul has killed the Lord's priests. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that day. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. When Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul. Oh my goodness, I have caused the death of all the people in my father's house. I have unleashed unbelievable evil. And just when you feel like he's going to be a victim or feel depressed or feel like overcome by fear, which all would be understandable, he then says to the guy whose family just got killed, the priest, stay with me. That sounds like terrible advice. You're the guy he's trying to kill. No, stay with me and do not fear. David, how can you not fear? How can you tell other people not to fear? For he who seeks your life seeks my life. And I'll tell you this, you stay with me, you will be safe. And again, there's that word, safe guarded. David, in the midst of his horrible circumstances, 
difficult being hunted by the most powerful man in the world. He says, I'm still not going to fear because I know to be with me, you're in the safest place you could be in the hands of God. Trust God to keep you safe guarded, not just safe. That's what God wants for you. What's pretty amazing about the Bible is that in the middle of the Bible is a book called the book of Psalms. And David writes these songs, these journal entries to describe how he trusted God to keep him safe guarded in the midst of these difficulties. A couple chapters from now, he's going to end up going to Gath where he shouldn't go. And he's going to feign madness, act like he's crazy. And one of the Psalms tells us that in the middle of that moment, he was trusting God when he was surrounded by Philistines. There's another psalm he writes that describes exactly how he felt when Doeg was after him. In fact, let me read you from that psalm. In Psalm 52, speaking about Doeg, he says, The goodness of God, imagine that, the goodness of God endures continually. I will praise you forever because you have done it. How in the world can there be all this carnage around him, fear around him, and he can say, if you look at the top of that psalm, it says this is the psalm David wrote when he came face to face with Doeg. This is what he said to God when life let the Doegs out. God, your goodness is continual and you've done it. You've protected me. But in Psalm 34, in a similar circumstance, he again expresses what it's like to trust in God to keep you safeguarded. Look what he says in Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. You know, I want that for you and I want that for me. There's so many times I determine my happiness, I determine my sense of security or confidence based on my circumstances. Things that are totally arbitrary and totally out of control. I taste and see. Is it safe out there? I taste and see. Are my circumstances what I like? Do I like the taste of it? The band's gonna perform this psalm as as a song, a worship song. And I want you to think as you hear this song, God, I don't want to just hear this song. I want to participate in the song. God, I want to taste and see that you are good in my current circumstances. If I can pray for you, that you and I could experience the confidence of knowing that we are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Maybe you want to say the words this way, Father. Give me the freedom to mourn and grieve a broken world. But thank you for coming into this broken world to die, to face adversity, to face cruelty from those Romans when you died on the cross. I receive you into my life afresh. I believe you died on the cross. And Father, in my current circumstances, teach me how to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.